0: Your Bibles go back to Matthew chapter 6, and I'll do a quick recap. If you weren't here with us this morning, a couple of different things from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is delivering what some people call the Manifesto of the King. And we learned this morning that uh, much, of the, much of the Sermon on the Mount is really designed to uh, realign what true faith is, and true religion, is versus what the Pharisees and what the Sadducees, what the Sanhedrin, which was the governing religious body of the day, <clears throat> was teaching the, uh, the people at the time. And there are three chapters, and in the middle of the chapter, Jesus contrasts, as he does throughout the entire Uh, Sermon on the Mount, different things. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And you'll see that over and over again. And as he contrasts what is true versus what is false, as well as what he establishes relative to his own authority. So Jesus not only is contrasting the true and false, but he's also establishing his authority as the Messiah. And what he is saying is uh, over and against what the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, the religious leadership says, of the day. The people were burdened by these, these things. The law had taken over to a point that it was burdensome to them, and they were living underneath this law, this religious system that was essentially external and hollow. And Jesus is saying, that isn't true. Let me tell you what is true, and therefore, quote, the manifesto of the king, this declaration of, of Jesus to the people, and in this case, it was a small group on a hillside. There's also an equivalent or a parallel passage in Luke 11. In the Sermon on the Mount, it was on a, on a hillside. The Pharisees, people listening and then closest to him, likely were the disciples that were following him intimately at the time. Right in the middle of, of the Sermon on the Mount, we find the Lord's Prayer, which really is the disciples' prayer. It's not the Lord's prayer, really. He's teaching us to pray. He was teaching the disciples to pray. Thus, the disciples' prayer. This is for us. We also said this morning that it is not for necessarily a recitation, although that's not a sin, or that's not misuse. It's probably not what Jesus was teaching here. More to the point, Jesus was using this as a pattern or a model for prayer. It's a divine model for our prayers. And what you can do is you can overlay uh, what Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 with many other different prayers. And the themes seem to string out all along Jesus' ministry into Paul's ministry, et cetera, all through the New Testament. There are these common themes. And the common themes really drive the disciples' prayer. And we'll, we'll see those in just, a, in just a few minutes. The outline is this. It's, a, it's easy, three-part outline. The, the first is the preface of true prayer. And that's in verse 9, the first part of verse 9. The preface of true prayer. The second point is, or the second lesson as he takes us to school, as Jesus takes us to school, is the petitions for God's concerns then come second. And that's verses 9, second half of verse 9, 9b, nine and 10. And then the third lesson in what Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us is the petitions for our own concerns. And we said this morning that there's a reason why he starts out with this preface. Let's read the preface together and we'll make some comments and it will get us into the prayer and then we'll begin to unpack the lesson that Jesus had for the disciples and he has for us. After he gets done with the the, uh, contrasting, Uh, of true and false, he says don't pray like the Gentiles, don't pray like the the Jewish leadership, don't pray with meaningless repetition, don't be like them for your father in heaven knows what you need. You don't have to cajole God into giving you something. That's not what this is all about. This is about fellowship with your father. Flatly, plainly, that's what this is. And it flows from there. Because he starts out in verse 9 Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven. You've heard it hundreds of times. Our Father in heaven. He says, Pray then in this way. Why did we say that this morning? What did we say about that this morning? This is not for recitation. If it was a recitation, it really would be Pray like this. That's what would sort of precede the, the prayer. Pray in this way, is what he says. And prayer is, is, shoves us right back into this idea of fellowship. And by the way, as you go through the, the, the disciples' prayer, there is redemption all over this prayer, all over this pattern. There is the evidence of God's fingers, his, fingers, his, uh, his, his fingerprints all over relative to grace and redemption. And you'll see that. It starts, Our Father, He is your father. He is my father because of grace, because of redemption, not anything else. This is not teaching universalism. This is not an overlay relative to sort of a moral construct where you could say, well, the whole world needs to follow. Well, they do, but this is not something that is a heartbeat of the unregenerate man. This is the heartbeat of a disciple. This is the heartbeat. Otherwise, he wouldn't say our father. Because if you say anything else except our Father, it, you're basically moving into universalism, and God is the Father of, now he's the creator, but this is a relational term, Father. He is not the Father. He's the creator, but he's not right, rightly related to every man. This is for disciples. This is for you and I, if you're a believer. Prayer is, comes from a term that means um, face-to-face. Pray, then, in this way. Come face to face with your Father. That's what the word means, prosuke. If that's what it means. It means come face to face. There is that fellowship element to prayer. This is not, again, recitation. And just that, that alone, that term alone, pulls us away from a recitation priority. Just the word alone. It's not formulaic, it's not that incessant, meaningless, thoughtless repetition in, that we saw up in verse 7. That the Gentiles do—that's not what this means. And again, it's not—it's not, uh, it's not uh, necessarily wrong to recite it, but that is not the thrust of what Jesus is trying to do here. Our Father in heaven is uh, where we start. Now, He starts out this idea of true prayer uh, by saying, "Our Father," by positioning the fellowship that we enjoy. Fascinating that it is and a priority. Well, as we said this morning, our, our needs typically do boil up to the, to the surface, don't they? Typically we do that. And Jesus is saying, no, it's your Father who is in view here. True prayer prioritizes the relationship between you and your God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in, this, in the order. It wouldn't be sort of in a preeminent position in the, uh, in the prayer model, in this divine pattern. Let me go through and define for you, out of Matthew chapter 6, what true prayer really is. This is true prayer. This is under, under the first part, under the first point of uh, the preface for true prayer. True prayer is familial, family. True prayer is familial. We already said this is meant for the believer, this prayer, this, this, uh, this pattern of prayer. David said this in Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. There was a familial ring to even David's uh, uh, exclamation in Psalm 34. O oh, magnify the Lord with us, let us exalt his name together. And this was, this was quite frankly, you know, again, based on, uh, uh, on, on grace. Uh, these are disciples. This is a glorious language of adoption. This is the language of family. God's family. This is the glorious language of adoption. Ephesians 1.5, we have adoptions through, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And it says, for adoption, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That's how this whole thing begins. We said this morning that prayer did not begin, quite frankly, with you and I, originally. Prayer, the access to the Heavenly Father, began when he, re- when he drew you to himself and that you were redeemed person. When your heart was changed, you were declared righteous, you were justified, and began your sanctification progressively through this, through this life by the power of the Spirit of God that was, that was indwelling in, in, in you at that time. That was adoption as sons. This is important for these folks listening in that day because adoption... Meant very many things, and they they understood the Greek uh, uh, sort of the Greek definition of adoption. That was a total break from. There was a total break legally from your old family. There were no. There were no uh, contingencies, no strings. And with your new family, whoever that may have been, all of the privileges of that new family were suddenly given without hesitation to that son or daughter. The adopted son or daughter became heir to a an adopted father's uh, trust, his estate. That was another legal point that uh, was happening in the Greek world at the time. Now this is going on in the disciples' minds, right? Legally, old life of son legally, the old life of the son was erased, including all the debts and all obligations. Do you smell? Do you see? Redemption there. All of that was wiped out. And you were now adopted into a new family with all of the old stuff, all the old familial relationships done, gone, separated. You are now in a new family. And that's where Jesus takes this term, and it probably Aramaic at the time, but translated into Greek. Uh, that's the idea, is this total separation and absolute absorption into this, this new family as an adopted individual. He later says in John, or in another account, in John, but as many, you've heard this, John 1.12, but as many as received to him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Same idea. Even to those who believe on his name. This is a very, very strong idea. And you know for, for us in our family, uh, my wife Pam, you, you know her, uh, she's adopted. We've, we have, uh, you know, discussed this for thirty-five years, and, uh, and and the idea of adoption is a glorious thing, particularly in spiritually speaking. Otherwise, we would not have been, you know, we would not be his own. Out of this adoption came comes this this uh, uh, this heartbeat that screams for a father for his father not screams literally certainly but it's just that yearning maybe that's a better word for it what does what is the what is the term that you have heard that we uh, that, that signifies this intimacy this childlike uh, uh, intimacy it's what it's abba father now that is a sign of there is there's some some misnomer that that's a f- uber familiarity you know sort of a term it really is you know, it is really Father in an intimate sense. It's really Father in an intimate sense. Um, it doesn't really, you know, it, it doesn't really connote over-familiarity whatsoever. Um, we'll talk about that in a, in a few moments. This idea of, of, of the, the plurality, the plural sense of the, the, uh, the prayer, our Father, we are coming to him, we are adopted sons, we are in the family of God, and even it extends into it extends into the church. the The, the word "ecclesia," you 'll hear that from times you 'll see it online.'ll people use that term. the called out ones that 's a plural ecclesia you 'll see it at conferences and so forth that 's what that means. plural, the called out ones. So true prayer is familial. We have a father that 's not difficult to see but if you begin to you know, pull the layers back, it has depth to it. True prayer is also God-centered. Just out of, this, out of this verse, verse 9, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven. It's God-centered. So it's not man-centered, it's God-centered. The objective to our prayers, our praying, is communion. That is the objective to our prayer. It is, it, is, it is occupying space, if you will, in prayer with the Father. It is intimacy at a familial level. Now, don't forget that, and I'm not forgetting that He, throughout the entire New Testament, there are scattered all across the pages of Scripture, we're enjoined to bring our needs to Him. But in this case, it really is the priority, and that is that true prayer is God's centered. And we said that earlier today, we said that, the, uh, the and again, this is a two-parter, so I have to go back to uh, some of that stuff this morning, that we, we're not there to extract things from God, like, the, uh, like the, uh, the priests of Baal trying to pound the ground and dance and sing and yell, trying to cajole Baal to, to do their bidding, and Elijah was sarcastically chiding them along the way. That is not it. That is not what we are to, what we are to be doing. It's interesting that Daniel Doriani is one of the, uh, sort of one of the premier commentators, one of the teachers that uh, has focused on the, pr- on the prayer itself. Um, and he simply says, no prophet ever taught the people to pray to God as our Father. Interesting. Only on rare occasions in the Old Testament is the term Father used, and even when it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in a, as an analogy, not as direct reference to God as Father. So how here's Jesus using the word, using the word Father. Can you understand now again why this was pushing buttons relative to the people on a positive note? Really? Father? Father? And pushing the buttons on a negative note to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leadership who was upholding this religious system at the time. They didn't really like that much. They were offended. They were offended, and we can see that in John 5, when Jesus violated the Sabbath. But what else did he do? He called God his Father, Now, in that case, it was equality with the Father. It was really an an underlining of his deity. But the idea of any person calling God their own father was, to to the Pharisees, blasphemous. It was offensive. And they didn't take lightly to that. The term father also in the first part of this verse, drives home a couple of important things I'm going to give to you. It, it, it drives home how he relates himself, the Father relates himself, to Jesus the Son. His redemptive work would bring glory to the Father, and we read that in John 6.38. Um, we can turn there if you've got a Bible there, John 6.38. That And actually, in 8.42, but John six 6.38 said, says this, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but, to the, to, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was in the business which he was when he was 12 years old in the temple, right? He's about, he's, he's doing his father's business when his mother and father left the Passover and was on their way home and he was left in Jerusalem and they said, where have you been? And I've been in the my father's house. I've been about my father's business. Well, his father's business. He, he was in the business of glorifying his father. How does he relate? How does the term father relate to him him and you and I? I'll give you a laundry list, a quick laundry list of how it relates to you and I. For Jesus, that was his, his father. They were, as it says in John, proston theon, it, they were face to face for eternity. They were together intimately for eternity in John 1. They were together. For you and I, we were adopted. We were brought to the family. And so how does the the term father relate to you and I as children? One is we are called sons, and I'll give you that, that reference, Matthew 5, 45. That's one thing. He justifies us as sons in Romans 8, 31 and 32, so we're sons, he justifies us, he disciplines us, a father disciplines us. I don't like that. Well, you should. Why? Because in Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, we won't won't take time to read it, but what does Hebrews say that when God disciplines you, what is that proof of? your sonship. its exactly right. The relationship that you have with your Father. That's, that, that's the discipline that is a privilege to have done to us for our behalf and for His glory as our Father. What else? He provides for us. Matthew 6, a little bit later in this chapter, we referred to it this morning, He provides for us. That's a great passage, and I don't know, you know, I was I lived in that passage in 2011, was laid off from a job I had for 20 years, and between Deuteronomy 8 and the recollection of God with the people of Israel, doing the miracles in the middle of nowhere, saying to the children of Israel, believe in me. You've seen what I've done. Why are you not believing in me? And the decision is to do you believe in him or not. Then you move to Matthew chapter six and Matthew chapter six, Jesus is saying, "Look, your father knows what you need." It's so comforting. So he knows what you need. So don't worry; he'll take care of you. What am I supposed to do? Seek first the kingdom of God. Let God take care of what He's going to take care of. He's your father. He also protects. He's our refuge in Psalm eighteen. He's our protector. Dads, you are a protector-provider for your families. Those of you that are not married men, you will be, you should be, a protector-provider. He is also compassionate as a father. Let me read to you Isaiah 63. This is wonderful. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, The great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love. That is the word chesed. You'll hear that from time to time. People use that word. That is a glorious, glorious word. And we don't have time to do a word study this morning. But that's the word. Hold on to that because that's something we might come back to in the future. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah was recounting this idea that God is compassionate. The Father is compassionate. Now, where we come to the Father, there is a balance between... Uh, this intimate, childlike sonship that we have, and one other thing, and that is a an element that people don't either don't know, don't want to know, they dismiss, or they're sort of curious about, but they really don't delve into, and that is the fear of God. Now, the word "fear" is used all across the New Testament, but let's let's call it reverence, reverence, reverential awe. It's this idea of reverence. There is, a, there is an important balance that we have to ma- maintain between intimate fellowship that Jesus is saying we have because we're part of his family, our father. But it is not something that we go into flippantly. We don't go to God sort of without that sort of respect, that, that reverential awe. And we, there's a balance between the two because it says, yeah, he's our father, but where is he? our Father in heaven. You see, in just that sentence, you peel the layers back and you see not only the Father as an intimate Father, an intimate being with us, by grace, but in heaven there is, there is imminence. You've heard this. There's imminence. He is close to us through relationship with, in a relationship through Christ. And there's transcendence. That is, he is God. And there's this balance that we have to maintain as we kneel before him in this intimate fellowship setting, this setting of fellowship. Life begins with fear, Proverbs says in Proverbs 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Fear is the beginning of everything, this, this idea of reverential awe. And some, we, we leave that behind a bit, and A.W. Pink Kind of summarized it for me, and I, I, I read this as we were driving along one day, one day in the last several weeks. And I just, I closed my book. I just had to kind of think about it, read it again. I read it to Pam. It was just so good. Let me read it for you. On this balance of relationship, this intimate communion, and biblical fear—not terror, not terror—different, but awe and respect. What a blessed balance this gives to the previous phrase. If that tells us, of course it's in the context of the book, if that tells us of God's goodness and grace, this speaks of greatness and majesty. Goodness and grace, our Father, and greatness and majesty, this idea of reverential awe, this fear. If that teaches us, of the nearness and dearness of his relationship to us, this announces his infinite elevation above us. If the words, our Father, inspire confidence and love, then the words, who is in heaven, should fill us with humility and awe. These are the two things that should ever occupy our minds and engage our hearts. The first without the second tends toward unholy familiarity, The second without the first produces coldness and dread or terror. By combining them together, we are preserved from both evils and a suitable balance. He uses an old term, equipoise. Interesting. A suitable balance is wrought and maintained in the soul as we duly contemplate both the mercy and the might of God, his unfathomable love, and his immeasurable loftiness. Now that is an earful, but that balances our father intimacy, co- intimate communion with who He is in the heavens, this balance between fear and the intimate communion we have as sons. Look at verse 9 in, in the second part in verse 10. Verse 9 and the second part of verse 10, he moves away from our Father who is in heaven and he begins to lay out petitions. So we saw the preface. Now we see the petitions for God's concerns. This is where we start the beginning of a list of six and we'll rapidly move through these. The first three are for God's concerns. The last three are are for our concerns. He comes first, our concerns are second. And there's an interesting juxtaposition in why. God's concerns are are, are preeminent. You know, the first four commandments and the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue were God-focused. Our vertical relationship. It is God who is preeminent in all of these things. It is ours to please Him. Folks, it's ours to please Him. Uh, Hebrews 11.6, and this is something you've heard before, we have to just hold to this. Even when we're praying, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. Faith meaning everything, everything relative to your life of faith. For whoever would draw near to God, and that's what we do in fellowship in our prayer, We are drawing near to God. That's what it is. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you truly seek him, he will reward that seeking. But the idea is this, that we go to him and we please him. That is the preeminent position of our hearts, the posture of our thinking. You know, it's interesting. I came across a passage, and I want to read it for you. Back in the Old Testament, Hezekiah in in 2 Kings chapter 19, um, and I'll read it it for you. If you want to turn there, you can, or or mark 2 uh, 2 Kings 19, 14 through 16. Here Hezekiah is the king, and he is in big trouble. The Assyrians have surrounded Hezekiah. They were not Friendly next door neighbors. They were there to annihilate Hezekiah and his men. And First Kings nineteen records this. It's it is fascinating, and I, I just put your life as over and against or situations that you know we are in on a daily basis over and against what Hezekiah is experiencing here. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Now, he goes on to talk about the situation with Sennacherib. He goes on to talk about the Assyrians and his desire for God to, to rescue them, to deliver them. The first thing that Hezekiah prays, the first thing that emanates from his soul is this idea that I come to a living God and I'm going to, I'm going to worship him, if you will. I'm going to Kneel before an almighty God. I'm going to kneel before the great I am and I'm going to put him in preeminent place in my thinking. Fascinating. Back then. There's also another petition that we, we can move to and that is in the last part of uh, verse 9 where, where Jesus says, hallowed be thy name. Old term, hallowed be thy name. Our Father who is in heaven, the imminency, the transcendence, our familiarity with our family relationship with the Father, the priority of bringing him. And in all of that, we ask that God would hallow his name first. This is lifting, much like Hezekiah did, this is lifting up the name of god now not just the uttered name the name signifies all that a person is we don't do that these days although you know when you have a rap on your reputa- reputation in some unjust way you you say i've got to get my name back same principle The idea of name is everything that that you are. Hallowed be thy name. And this is where it gets very, it's still personal. It's very personal. That term means set apart. Well, I want to, Lord, I want you, and this is what Jesus is teaching the disciples, I want you to be set apart in my life, and I want you to be set apart all over the world, that people would see this hagia, this holiness of who you are of who you are. I want you to be separated from lesser things in my life and in the lives of those around me. I want to be a sanctifying influence to those people who I I know, who I minister with, who I go to church with, who I go to school with, who I work with. I want your name to be separated from the trivialities of the world. Jesus said the same thing in John 12 when he said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, and he, and obviously God the Father said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus wanted his, the name of his Father to be glorified and set apart from everything else uh, in life. Giving, it's, giving, it's giving God a unique place as well. It's also uh, sort of a, uh, on the backside of this an abhorrence for sin. I don't want sin to be associated I want evil to be associated with the father who is merciful who given me life I want, I want that to I want people to see the purity and the holiness of God hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven now that's later on down the road but on earth as it is in heaven covers all of these petitions on earth as it is in heaven everywhere I want you to be seen as holy holy um, there's, we do this. Uh, uh, this is all. This is also. I guess the, the idea would be that, that that Paul refers to in Philippians, in Philippians two. That it's not just in our lives. It's not just sort of in the heavens. It's also in the minds of unbelievers, and they will one day separate. God, from all the trivialities. They will realize at one point, because in Philippians 2, Paul, you've heard this, so that, the na- so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That was Paul's heartbeat. Philippians chapter 2, 9, uh, uh, verse 10 and 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the heartbeat of a believer. Oh, this is juxtaposition to what he was referring to earlier up in, the, up in the chapter when he was saying, this is not the way you pray. This is the way they pray. This is the way the Greeks pray. This is the way that the Pharisees laud themselves. This is not what you are. This is what you are. There is a, there's a, a... If you go to Revelation chapter 4, and we won't do it tonight, but put... Put a little, put a finger in Revelation chapter four, and take some time to read through the picture of worship in Revelation chapter four. It is magnanimous. As you, even in later in in, in chapters twenty one and twenty two, the worship of God is magnanimous. It is it is it is we are to hallow His name now and forever. What's the next petition? The next idea? The next desire for God? Number two. That we would hallow His name, and that His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In verse ten, again, these are—it's amazing what comes out of each one of these. There's just sentences. Your kingdom come as as on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom. In fact. Um, I wish we had more time. Um, in chapter five, as Jesus was was just on the scene and he was making waves, he had gotten done through. He had gotten through the Beatitudes. He was moving through the Sermon on the Mount and all of the all of the the, the uh, traits of a, of a true believer: poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle. Again, those are not moral overlays for the world. This is the believer. This is who this is, those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, etc. And he moves down into chapter, or, uh, down further into the chapter to verse 17. And this is the apex of this whole sermon on, the, sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, when Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He is going to fulfill the law. The law was, was burdensome. He is bringing something absolutely, absolutely new. His kingdom is his royal rule, or wherever his influence is. The kingdom is past, the kingdom is present in the lives of the church, and the kingdom is future, where his kingdom is is fully exposed to the world, and we will be part of it if we are believers in Christ. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, this is the heart of a spiritual warrior, quite frankly, Because I want my king, I want him on the throne. I want him to be seen as king, as he is. That was the heartbeat of the disciples. That was the heartbeat of Jesus, obviously, when he's teaching his disciples to pray this way. The kingdom to come is also very evangelistic. I want your kingdom to come through me and through others, to save people. That's what he's saying. I want them to come to you, Jesus. I want them to be saved. It also has to do with not only evangelism, but edification, that Christians would grow, that the kingdom of God would be flourishing in the lives of his own, flourishing in the lives of, of, of the church, that the church would mature, that when I pray, your kingdom come. That's such, such a huge concept, but that the, king, that the, that the kingdom would, would spread evangelistically and it would also buoy up the church. It would also have to do with Christ's return and restoration of all things, as 2 Peter 3 says, waiting for the hastening of the coming day of the Lord. This idea of the kingdom coming. And, and by the way, if you've ever taken time to read anything about the kingdom, in all of its phases, it's it's massive. It, the, the, the study is massive. It's, it's glorious, but it's massive. If you ever have, if you ever want a, a a study to do and you have lots of time, start to read about God's kingdom. It is glorious. The second or the third petition that we have that pr- puts God first, if you will, the priority and the premacy of of God. Is, is in verse 10, the second part of verse 10, that your will will be done. So, so there are three here that he begins with. This is what I'm asking, Heavenly Father, now that I'm a son of yours, I want your name to be hallowed, I want your kingdom come, and I want your will to be done. Now, think about that for a moment with, with me. You, you want the kingdom you want your will to be done. What does that practically, what are the implications to that? That his, will, that his will would supersede whose will? My will, our will. This is our Father. Our will is subjective and submissive to the will of God. Are we ready to do that? Is that really sort of the heartbeat of your prayer? And that is that he would, his rule, his will would then supersede your will in all things. That is a place of demanding submission. It is having to do with the extension of his kingship. And knowing this implies, his will over my will implies not only submission, but what to his will? Obedience. That I am praying that your will would be done. If your will is done, my will is submissive to your will, Heavenly Father. Our will is submissive to you. And if that's the case, then I have to be willing to be an obedient servant. I have to be obedient. Which, by the way, is a chief trait of a redeemed man or woman obedience is a is a chief trait of of a redeemed man or woman and if ever you if ever you want to know what the traits of a true believer are spend time in the in the word in 1 John because throughout the throughout the throughout 1 John there are signs of saving faith Scattered all through First John, such a it's a great study. It's also it buoys you up. Lord, show me the things that would testify to your your life in me. Let me see my life, and and then of course you pursue those things as well, obedience. But without obedience, there is there is uh, that's without obedience. That's that's evidence of. Or a desire to obey a pattern of obedience. We all disobey. It's the pattern of obedience that's the issue. This has to do with his lordship. This whole idea of your will would be done. Isn't it interesting when we sort of pump the brakes on something we're we're so familiar with, and begin to set down? And believe me, we said early this morning, and we'll have to. I have to repeat it. it. This is a vast ocean of of biblical truth, uh, this this idea of of praying. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. It's the first sip, as I said this morning, drinking in an ocean of grace. That's what this is. But that's the first step. It's the first sip begins to assuage our thirst, but this is his kingdom. This is not my kingdom. So I approach him, hallowing his name. I approach him that his kingdom will come in all of its manifestation in my life and the life of the church. And I approach him asking his will to be done. And, it, and, and, and you can't separate his will to be done if this is really your prayer, if this is really something that you're convicted about. It's here's will to be done out there. Not so. That and in my own heart and in my own life makes it very personal because remember, our Father. So this gets, this stays personal throughout the entire disciples' prayer. Now he moves, he pivots. The priority is God. God. I want God, I want these things for you. You're my Father. These are three things that I want for you. I'm praying for these three things. And now he, he pivots to, let me tell you about petitioning for your own concerns. Teaching them to pray. Again, a pattern of prayer. I'll write to you what I put down to myself. And this is just, just my note. This is a note to me. It said, I said to myself, so wonderful that Jesus places my personal requests in these next three behind the recognition of who God is and praying for his concerns. When I have spent time drawing near to a loving, sovereign, all-powerful God who is my Father, ever promising me his divine care, beckoning me to pray persistently, beckoning me to pray persistently, I can let my request be made known to him. I, re- I, can, re- let, I can let my request be, made, be voiced to him. He is capable. See, this is why going to him first is such a blessing. His capability, he is capable of granting me my requests as they are made according to his will. I've just come out of recognizing who God is. Now, I bring my requests in the shadow of those first three requests, that, 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 that first part. It is, it is God. He is preeminent. Now I bring my requests, and my requests are coming to this God that I've recognized, just, just like Hezekiah did, that grand language. I'm bringing these to you now, God. My heart and mind are fixed upon who you are and fixed upon my relationship with you. I'm coming to you in intimate fellowship. You're my Father, and I'm coming to you with reverential awe, a biblical fear, knowing who you are, you are a transcendent God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and now I bring my requests to you. And all of a sudden, the relationship between who God is, you've worshipped him, you have drawn him high in your heart and mind, his interests supersede your interests, and now you juxtapose That picture with your own requests and your own requests don't seem so immense. Now, there are serious things that we pray for each other in life. There's no doubt. As I said this morning, we pray here at this church. On a in many venues regularly, it's taught here. It's not. It's not trivialized here. It's not an afterthought. It is part and parcel. It's core of worship. The word and prayer, three channels of grace, and the fellowship, the the church itself, how God influences our lives. But now my my needs just seem to be a little more relative to the great God and Father. And He's my Father. He's my Father. He's my Father. Pater. He's my Father. In, seek, in, in seeking God, I'll read you what I have here. In seeking God first, preeminently, it has a sanctifying effect on what we are, at, what we are about to ask for ourselves. It oftentimes is like a sanctifying effect, and it writes the ship, it rights the, it uprights the ship, our hearts, so that when I begin to come to this Father and this 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 awesome God that we serve, I don't come to Him with sinful requests, begins to sanctify those away. And I really begin to come to him with purified requests, with motives that are appropriate, motives that are pure. And you know, when those are pure, he answers prayer. There, is, there are situations where he will not answer prayer. We, one of the things, Psalm 66, 18, if I hold sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we said, he, he hears, of course. He's, om, he's omniscient. The idea is he, he hears, but he doesn't listen to you. There is, there is residing sin, and that is, not, that is incompatible with a holy God. And he simply won't. But we come to him First. And it begins to purify our motives and then begins to purify our prayer, our prayers, what we take to him. And then our prayers become aligned with who he is. Remember, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My prayers then become aligned with his will. My prayers begin to be aligned with who he is. This is the, one preacher said, this is the manward side of the Lord's Prayer. Proper prayer shapes our character, and it has an influence on us. It's it's moving us to sanctification. So what what is, you know, what's the first petition? Let's go through these quickly, and we'll round out the disciples' prayer. For us, petition number one, for us. Three for him, three for us. The first is in verse 11. You can read it there. Give us this day our daily bread. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Well, back in the day, uh, if it's an agrarian society, and I grew up here in Ventura County, if you've grown up here, if you live here, you understand this is an agrarian society. Um, In that day, a good drought or a flood, what would that do to crops? What would that do to your existence? If you're an agrarian society, that would decimate you what did it do in, you know, in Oklahoma in the 20s and 30s? It decimates you. No wonder they, they said that. Now, if you take the, the word bread, it's really a, a bigger term than that. And, and the principle behind this is about, it really has to do with dependence. Give us this day our, our daily bread. Really, it's much broader than that. It's, it's give me what I need to subsist today and tomorrow. That's all. It's fascinating that he doesn't say, pray for these, you know, pray for these things, you know, for for the rest of my life. It just really is more of a day by day by day by day by day by day prayer. Now why is that? Because it's really having to do with dependence on a day by day by day by day. What happens to us normally when one day your bread basket is full? And you don't have one, but you have three bread baskets. You maybe have four. What do we do if we're using the bread analogy? What happens typically? We begin to move away. We begin to become self-dependent. We we begin to become independent. So, So Jesus is just saying, every day, ask the Father for what you need for that day and the next day. Just this day and the next day. There's an urgency about this, by the way. And I don't know that we really get... I mean, the language of, of, of verse 7, there is, a, there is actually a, an urgency. There's an urgency because, after all, bread is sustenance. Give us this day. I don't know whether we get that because when you and I walk down the aisles at Costco and, you know you're buying $300 worth of jelly beans at once, you know, and $500 worth of Band-Aids, uh, and, and those, those, you know, you've been there. The aisles are, are huge. I don't know that we, we... Walk down one of those aisles and start to think about, about that. We just don't get that, particularly in our, you know, in our society here and, and there. But, you know, it just reminds us that God is the resource for Everything. Paul said it. You've heard it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's that is the wrong that's the wrong reference. Um, but I'll read it to you anyway. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Recall the way that God provided to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 18. I referred to it earlier. Every day he sent manna every day? It was a daily occurrence. What was he doing? What was he building in what was he building in the children of Israel? Independence. Could God this is a rhetorical this is just a rhetorical question because you know the answer. The question is, could God have simply said, I'm going to provide for 40 years, I'm going to give it all to you, and I'm going to give it out you, and we're going to store it over here, and there it is. And the children of Israel would have, been, would have seen this food bank, and God says, it's 40 years, and now you have it. He could have done that. But he did not do that. And he pressed them to trust him. Now, we find that he, what happened to the children of Israel, just like humanity, they begin to move away and grumble. I got mine today, and I'm kind of tired of this manna. Again? Manna bread, <laughs> banana. All, the, all that manna, and they were, they, were, uh, they were grumbling again. But that's what he was trying to teach them was this idea of dependence, and that is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Go to God for what you need. I love this. Agur in Proverbs 30. Listen to this. Two things I ask of you, God. Two things I ask you, deny them not for me before I die. Remove me from falsehood and lying. Here it is. Give me neither poverty nor riches and feed me with the food that is needful for me. What I need so that I am not full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me what I need. Not too much. Not too little. Now, by the way, if you're a person who is an affluent person, if by God's grace through providences in your life, in one way or the other, you are considered in any one particular society here you're an affluent person there is nothing that's not an issue that is not an issue because god's still saying where did that where did that affluence come from there is nothing that that you have that i did not give to you affluent Mildly affluent, middle class, wherever you might be in your socioeconomic ladder. It is still God who provides that for us. What is the the second petition for you and I? Three for God, three for men, our daily bread in verses 12. And then he also caps the whole chapter in verses 14 to 15. But verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors this addresses our chief need, and we'll run, run, run through these very quickly, but I, I thought that I thought that I'm, I don't need to be forgiven because I was once forgiven and I was saved. Well, that's true, and once you're saved, you are sealed. This is really talking about forgiving other people because you have been forgiven. This is, this is talking about forgiveness flowing from a forgiven heart. This is talking about fractured fellowship when there is debt, if you will. There's sin between two people. That's what this is talking about. This is not talking about, uh, if I don't forgive you know, Joe over here, then in any one particular place, you know he, he did something he offended me or he you know, whatever that might be, that God will take away his forgiveness or he won 't forgive me now from on a legal standpoint, from a justification standpoint that 's not true this has to do with a, this has to do with fellowship, this has to do with uh, relationship, and it 's true that where we are are not willing to forgive others, there is a withholding of the relationship with another withholding there's a fracturing withholding a blessing certainly there's a fracturing of your relationship with the heavenly father and it just doesn't seem right you're not right with the father if someone has never repented perhaps and I won't read the parable but there's a parable in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant remember that parable He was to be forgiven and his master forgave him and his friend-servant owed him a smaller debt. Servant A owed his master a huge debt. You see the redemptive trace through there? We owe our Heavenly Father a huge debt and he has forgiven us and out of that should flow a forgiveness an attitude of forgiveness. Lord, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debts. Let me be a person who is a forgiver. Let that be the characteristic of of my life. Let it be what I'm known for. Forgiveness flows from a forgiving heart. We have to be a confessing people, by the way. If you're not a person who I'll put it in the positive. We have to be people who are quickly, aggressively uh, confessing sin. In 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 First John one nine, you know, where John is saying, "You confess your sin. Come to me and confess your sin." The whole the whole passage is probably more than we have for right now but certainly if we say we have no sin we are deceivers of so our, uh, ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sin you know this verse he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sin the, t- the tense of that is present tense if we are confessing our sin and continuing to confess our sin and continuing if that's a pattern of our life if that's a regularity of our life, that's what 1 John is saying. If we are actively, constantly confessing our sin to the Lord. And again, it's been, it's, it's, it's a relationship, it's a relational perspective. It's, it's uh, not legal cleansing. It's not justified, justification cleansing. We need to be watchful about maximizing other's sins while we minimize our own the old log in the eye uh, syndrome. What else? What's the final petition that Jesus says as a pattern? These are elements to your prayers. Overlay these, these into your prayers. Overlay this into your prayer life, these three, these six things, these three petitions for the Father. Let that be a priority. And these three petitions of your own. Draw them into your prayer life. What's the last one? Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is fundamental to, to us. Now, if you don't get anything from this point, you get this from James 1.13 through 15. That's absolutely most important. Jesus is saying to the disciples, Pray this to the Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, that's not what James 1 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is further, fully grown, brings forth death. But God is not the one who tempts you to sin. What this is, this is a rhetorical way to talk about protection from sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Lead us not into temptation. Let me not be tested to the point where I deny you. Draw me away. Strengthen me. That don't, don't fail the test, the temptation, the test. It's the same parasmos, it's the same word. Don't, don't let me fail these things. Don't let me be in a point where I, where I, where I sin and, dis, and defame you. I sin and bring defamation to your name, Lord. I want you to be lifted high. I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. I don't want to sin. Draw me away from those situations this is a cry for rescue from from tempting circumstances and god brings us into those things but it also says he gives us strength to endure doesn't he those those kinds of testing this is holiness on the front side of sin lord on the front side of sin Prior to sin, Lord, lead me not into temptation. This is holiness on the front side of sin, like First 1 John 1:9, 1, and confessing sin is on the back side of sin. It's all a matter of holiness. It's a matter of holiness. Lord, g- draw me away from sin. I want to be holy man. And when sin comes along, and when temptation comes along, give me the strength to resist, to flee from sin. That's the front side before sin happens, that's that, the the element of holiness prior to, and 1 John 1, 9 is the holiness on the backside of sin when he says, if you are, if you confess your sin, if you're constantly confessing your sin, and by the way, we have to constantly confess our sin because we constantly sin. J.C. Ryle, have you ever read his book Holiness? There's another book you need to, to, to read. It's big, but it's wonderful. He says, teaches us that we are liable at all times to be led astray and to fall. This teaches us, instructs us to confess our infirmity and beseech God to hold us up, not to allow us to run into sin. We ask him, who orders all things in heaven and earth to restrain us from going into that which would injure our souls? And never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And of course, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape, of victory that you may also be able to endure it. David said the same thing in Psalm 114. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice the deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Do not let me eat of their... Don't let me sin, Heavenly Father. I don't want to sin. I want to be a pure man. I want to be pleasing to my Heavenly Father. Look, we have a responsibility when it comes to sin too. It's praying on the front side. It's confessing on the backside. What do we do proactively to address this idea of sin? Bathe in the Word. Bathe in the Word. Psalm one nineteen eleven. Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Every BBS kid, every Awana kid, has memorized that. It's still truth from the divine mind and heart of God. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sin. What does that mean? Of course I flee from sin. Don't put yourselves in a position to lust. Don't put yourself in a position to steal. If you have a weakness, keep me from circumstances like that. If If I'm vulnerable to the flesh like David and Bathsheba, keep me from that. If I lack the strength of Joseph to move away quickly from a situation like Potiphar's wife that had him by the coat. Remember that story in Genesis 39? She had him by the coat. She had him dead to rights. And he, he got out of there. He flees sin. Now, just principalize that, that in any principle, any situation that you might find yourself. Keep me from, such, from circumstances where I might be deceived or lack courage or resolve. Like who, who would in your mind, small enough group tonight, who, who in your mind would be the poster boy for being deceived, lack of courage, and totally losing all resolve whatsoever in a moment when you're challenged in the light of a small fire by a small girl? Peter. Lord, if I'm, if I'm not bold If I'm not courageous, oh, strengthen me, Heavenly Father, but don't lead me to those places. If 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 that's what you're going to teach me, then strengthen me. Give me strength to escape the temptation, if you will, the trial. Let me have victory over that. If I covet riches like Elisha's servant Gehazi, if I am to deceive other people like Ananias and Sapphira, if I'm a deceiver, if I tend to go that direction, Lord, move me away from those things. Again, we're saved. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We have the power to, to, uh, to escape sin, if you will, to kill sin, to move away from sin. The world doesn't have that. But make no mistake, our sinful flesh is still alive and well. But if I do encounter these things, I want to respond in a righteous way. That's what that means. That's what it means when he says, lead us not into temptation. I don't want to sin. I want to be a holy man well this prayer this instruction from the master teacher this these lessons are a gift from the very lips of God himself and this morning I I, and maybe it's just something in my mind I when I read through this I I can't help but put myself in that place and I'm listening to Jesus instruct me on how to pray and I look at him and you're looking into the face of the creator and he's simply saying pray this way use these principles use this construct this is the way I want you to come to me this is not to restrict, put a, put a damper, restriction on our praying heart as so much as it is to guide our praying heart. That's what this is. This is not a recitation. This is fellowship with the Father. These are principles. These are patterns. There's so much more to prayer, as you know, but today we have taken I've said several times, a sip out of the ocean of grace. I'm so glad that that, uh, Matthew adds it here, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this into the Gospels because as we look into the the eyes of Jesus himself, we are reminded that God's word is open to us here in Matthew chapter 6 and so is his ear to our prayers. We come to him as he's, as he's outlined here. Won't we pray together? Oh Heavenly Father, I know that I know that for myself sitting in this passage for many hours has Has not exposed the entirety of the theme of prayer throughout your word. But Heavenly Father, I will confess to these dear people that what you have drawn me into has pricked me. It has stimulated my thinking. It It has caused me to confess my own sin. It has made me, Father, to reconsider how I approach the throne. Oh, Heavenly Father, by grace, you are beckoning me to come. And so, Father, thank you. I will come, and we will come as a body. But, Heavenly Father, let this be just a reminder that we are to come in a way that pleases you. And you have been so gracious to draw us into a place of school, into lessons of how we can address you appropriately. Father, thank you for our day of worship today. Thank you for this morning, our worship today. Thank you for these dear people tonight. And may spending some time in Matthew chapter 6 be a blessing to their hearts as they go from here and they pray as they read your word. Let this only be a taste. Father, reveal yourself to them more extensively and may their prayers be a wonderful aroma to your, to your nose of wonderful sound to your ear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.